The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This week, leaders in the fight to reduce global warming will convene in Milan as a run-up to the big COP26 climate conference. Italy's Minister for Ecological Transition tells us what to expect from the pre-COP. Welcome to the Road to COP, our exchange podcast series ahead of the mega climate conference taking place in Glasgow next month. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from the Constitution State of Connecticut this week. Over the next few days, hundreds of leaders in the fight to keep the planet from frying will be convening in Milan for the so-called pre-COP. Hosting the gathering will be Roberto Cingolani, Minister for Ecological Transition in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Mario Draghi in Rome. Cingolani cuts an unusual figure in Rome, not just because he prefers to go tieless with shirt sleeves rolled up. For starters, he's a physicist, not a politician. Draghi plucked him for the private sector, where he worked at Leonardo, the Defense and Aeronautics Group, and from Ferrari, where he served on the Board of Directors. He's had an eventful nine months on the job, overseeing big investments in infrastructure and renewable energy as part of Italy's recovery fund. Now he's helping Italy lead rich country efforts to accelerate plans to decarbonize. As he tells me in our chat, the big challenge will be to find a way to convince the world's three billion people who still lack access to reliable and dependable sources of energy to bypass the hydrocarbons that rich nations like Italy and America have been burning for generations. That will take something of a super Marshall plan, he says, but it's not just a question of money. Cingolani also talked about some of the technological breakthroughs that can help the world meet net zero ambitions. And we talked a bit about rising electricity and gas prices. Give a listen to my chat with Roberto Cingolani. Minister Cingolani, it's great to see you. When we first met in the spring, you were putting the finishing touches on big investments that Italy's making in the green transition as part of the recovery plan. Since then, you've hosted your G20 counterparts in Naples, and now you're preparing to host a really important gathering in Milan, the pre-COP as it's called. But, but before I get to that, I have a question for you. I'm curious, you've been in this job now for almost nine months. Are you more or less optimistic about the ability of the world to limit global warming to one and a half degrees? Well, for the time being, I think that for the G7 and the G20, there is a very high probability that we match the Paris Agreement requirements. I'm a bit worried about the remaining 3 billion people in the planet having uh, no clean fuels for cooking, maybe 1 billion having no direct access to electricity. In that, I believe the even the definition of ecological transition for those 3 billion people it could be different than for us. So, you know, G7, G20 is approximately... 4.8 billion people. I think there are there is a sort of a relatively uniform landscape there, and we, we can do a good job. But, but how we will we'll succeed in not leaving the others behind? That's for me, uh, it's a problem. I'm, I'm I'm worried about that. Let's then talk about how we get to that because that's a really important point. It's it's essentially a rich country versus developing country question, and we we haven't got it solved, that's for sure. But let's talk about the pre-COP. I mean, that is taking place this week. It's sort of an appetizer, I guess you could say, for the the, the Glasgow event in November. What what do you think can you know concrete steps could be established, or even just sort of precursors to that big event over the next couple of days? In well, I believe this this is really. Quite, quite an event. Uh, imagine 400 young people gathered in Milan from 190 countries or so and making a simulation, a sort of experiment in which they, they act like decision makers. 
So they, they make an experiment. They have a, mm. a few problems to face and they discuss the problems. They adopt the strategy, develop a, a position paper. They propose the position paper to the real decision makers. So adults, let's say, they will discuss and the best and the best ideas will be forwarded to the COP26. I mean, I think this is really new. And if you consider that maybe some of those young people will be uh, future decision makers, that is a fantastic uh, uh, trial. I think, I, I think it's really exciting. Now, what I expect is also some surprise because the way young people see present and future is very, very often different from how we, we, see, we see those. So maybe, maybe they will invent and propose something that, that is unexpectedly good. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it. I keep thinking of it as old guys and, and women getting together, minister level, minister. And I don't really think of the young folks who, of course, are the ones this is going to affect the most. I mean, people like me are going to be off this mortal coil by the time. We'll it, produce it, carbon fully... dioxide at that time ourselves, our own carbon dioxide. <laughs> right. So I imagine you've got Greta Thunberg and sort of the, the celebrities of uh, climate change there. What process? They'll come, they'll come forward with recommendations that then that will, they'll go to what, the, the COP and the G20 and others? How, how will that actually work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, first of all, there's a change of paradigm, if you think. Uh, these young people have accepted, have accepted a challenge. Stop protesting start proposing. That's fantastic. Because they have the strongest energy. I mean, of course, protesting is important because you need to raise the problem. But it comes a time that, okay, the problem is clear everywhere. Good merit to the young people. Now start proposing because you have the vision that we miss. You have a different vision. You have a digital vision if you want, because you're millennials and you grew up with a different culture and so on and so forth. Second, they will be gathered around tables uh, you know, discussing with, with, with expert discussions specific problems, and then they will uh, produce proposals. So we will see the quality of the proposals, but I have a reasonable expectation that the proposal will be, will be good. And, and the best proposals will be presented at the COP26. So if the process will be successful, we will have brand new proposals for the future of the ecological transition, for the future of or the planetary uh, environmental destiny produced by the young generations. That is the first time ever. Yeah, no, that, that is a novelty. Uh, before we get to COP, of course, there's the G20 meeting in October, which Prime Minister Draghi will be hosting. What role will Italy play? I mean, it seems to me Italy is in a very unique, you know, has a very unique moment. Um, I don't want to say the rest of the world is falling apart, but, you know, you have elections in France, you have Germany, we have, you know, the end of the Merkel era. The United States is still fighting over lots of things internally. You have the UK still struggling with getting bananas and because of Brexit or whatever it is. You know, Italy is sort of a, a stable place. You're running, you're going to be in charge of the G20. How do, how do you and Prime Minister Draghi make sure that climate change is at the top of that agenda? So first of all, about the international agenda, uh, I have to say that in the circular economy and some environmental issues, Italy has always been quite ahead. Now, having this uh, international uh, uh, situation and having a, a super bright mind like Mario Draghi as a prime minister, I mean, clearly Italy has to, I mean, has the responsibility of some leadership in conducting this period. And this leadership, you, 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 should, you should see the leadership in how we conducted the G20 and how we are pushing and pursuing the strategy towards uh, the climate, the, the um, uh, ecological transition. 
So I believe that uh, the entire government at the moment is, is fully committed on the, on the transformation. The, the ecological transition means energy transition on one hand. Of course, ecological transition means uh, empowering nature to go back to the previous, uh, to, to the pre-industrial levels, boosting circular economy. But in doing this, we have to save the social aspects. You know, it will be relatively easy for a rich country to restore its own microenvironment. But the point is that uh, we should do this leaving no one behind. This is not my sentence, as you know. <laughs> it's <laughs> general one. So uh, within the country, we have uh, inequalities and uh, we, we are working hard to uh, reduce the inequalities. But within the planet, we, are much, we have much larger inequalities. And this is a sort of common responsibilities of all the richer, richer countries, essentially yeah. protecting and supporting vulnerable countries. So I think Mario Draghi is, is fully committed in this direction. Italy is fully committed in this direction. And I think we're in a very, very good company. I've seen this during the G20 environment and energy. And honestly, uh, Rob, I have to say that uh, the kind of discussion and the level of discussions we had were very inspiring. Two years ago, all, all that would have been a dream. Whereas in July, all countries agreed we have to stay within minus two degrees. Possibly we should accelerate to be minus 1.5. Even the most difficult countries, the largest countries like, like China, India, I mean, they have, they have real problems. They, they are billions of people. For them, changing the, the pathway is, of course, uh, more difficult than for, for Italy having 60 million people. But yet you've seen just a few days ago, China announcing a very good step forward in the decarbonization. And I believe this is really a, a way to show that they also believe in this change. I think so, that's a really good point. That's yeah. a, I mean, just to pick up on, on the China thing, the other day, China, Xi Jinping, the president said the country would end the financing of coal power plants overseas. Now, everyone says, oh, yeah, but they're building like one a week uh, carbon, you know, burning a fossil fuel uh, energy plant at home. But do you, so it's great that they're not building them abroad, but do you think that that's actually a sign that China might also be willing to do something at home? Uh, Rob, to be honest, uh, uh, I've learned uh, uh, that those are very slow and gigantic processes. So I've never seen gigantic processes to occur very rapidly. Otherwise, otherwise they become cat catastrophic, okay? I think they, have, uh, they also have social uh, uh, justice problems inside. So they, if they make the transition, they have to govern a, a very large population. So I consider this as a, as a very good input, as a very good step forward. And I consider this also in part as a consequence of, of the job we did in July. Uh, I can say, I think I can say safely, all countries in the world are convinced that we have to, to change. Now, the pace of the change, how fast will be the change, I understand it depends on local circumstances. But I, I do see good signals. As I said, I'm more worried about the 3 billion people that are left outside the discussion and that the COP26 should somehow protect, involve, and that's why I have big expectation on the COP26, even though I know that it is impossible to have a, a discontinuous jump, you know, a digital jump. But I hope sure. there will be a step forward also in this respect. So what do rich countries like Italy, the United States, G20, let's say, need to do to encourage emerging economies, those, you know, which are really where those 3 billion people reside, to more aggressively bypass sort of the hydrocarbon era? Because, I mean, what we're talking about is these are people without the kinds of energy, access to energy that we have now. Yeah. And, it's, and it is almost immoral to suggest 
well, we've been burning coal and fossil fuels for the last 100 years. And oh, sorry, now we've got the money to build electric power uh, renewables. And you guys, I'm sorry, we just you're going to have to keep burning cow dung to make your fires in your in your homes. How do we do that? What is this just a question of money, Minister, or is it more than that? If you give a look to the COP26 agenda, of course, mitigation, adaptation, creating green finance, those, those are mandatory. We have to do this. But the point is, mitigating and adapting means that you already accept the problem and then you try to fix it. So I think we're missing prevention. In the future, we should have no new problem to get adapted. This is something that as rich countries, we should start on our own. In the meantime, we should support weaker and vulnerable countries to upgrade their, their situation. And this, to me, is barely a problem of infrastructures. If you want to have green energy, uh, renewable, whatever, you need a smart grid, you need roads, you, know, you need a waste cycle, you need circular economy, and ultimately all this is infrastructure. So that means yeah. we should invest in those countries, but not, not 100 billions. 100 billions is spinach. I think there are 170 countries or so. The effort should be bigger. You need private and public partnerships. No, no state can afford for that. No, it cannot be the public only. It should be private plus public investment funds directed to reducing the distances, let's say. And then you need education and culture. Education is not only the social awareness and public awareness of the uh, climate change. This is important in the G20. In those countries, you need, you need education at any level, improving the school, the university, gender issues, public health systems. You know, really, this is the best investment we can do for the planet. But of course, ultimately, it's a matter of money. But I believe infrastructures are urgently needed now. So kind of almost like a Marshall Plan or some giant, not like the Chinese Belt and Road, but some, some, something in there that, that isn't debt financed. But Look, look Rob, I, I fully agree. The point is that... Uh, those, uh, let's say, unfortunate, unlucky people, they live in the same planet, planet where we are. They want to grow and they have the right to grow. And when you grow, you need energy. So we have made all our calculations for the transition, trying to mitigate the carbon dioxide problem and greenhouse gas problems for 4.8 billion people. But if the other 3 billion will start growing, we will be missing compensating their carbon dioxide. So it cannot be simply stay there and wait. We really have to develop a, a global strategy. So it's a sort of super Marshall plan. It's, it's in our interest too. Is there a danger that the West, I mean, Europe, United States, Canada, Japan, et cetera, is too distracted and divided by things like, you know, the rollout of COVID vaccinations, masks, you know, wearing masks, Afghanistan, nuclear submarine sales to Australia. I mean, is there the sense that there's almost the West is too divided to agree on important sustainability goals? Are you concerned about this? Rob, honestly, uh, we are 8 billions. So maybe we're a little bit too much compared to what the biological capacity of the planet could, could support. And secondly, as a species, sapiens is not, not exactly uh, a constructive animal. We, we tend to be at the top of the, of the food chain, I have to say. So we generally act like predators. Uh, unfortunately, this is biology, if you want, or, or anthropology. Uh, but, but of course, having said this, uh, the only way to mitigate this attitude is culture. Science, studying... We, we, need, we need culture at a global level. To me, this will be the solution to mitigate the otherwise aggressive attitude of humans. Now, of course, in, in a historical period like, like the one we're living, uh, yes, the climate change is a big, big problem. We have the COVID as a big, big problem, and we are fighting against 
natural catastrophic events, even though this could be produced by the humans, but anyway, they are natural. And on top, we, we add our own mistakes. I think our own mistakes can be corrected. We just mm-hmm. need to think a little bit more careful what we do. And, and sometimes uh, having a big, a big natural problems forces humans to cooperate. But even in the, in the, in the COVID, you've seen, somehow we cooperated, but still there is billions of people, people left behind. So it's, yeah. it's pretty much like uh, the three billions of people having uh, little energy or no access to energy. I think those are the same people having no vaccination. Yeah, no, so there is a correlation. Yeah, there is clearly a correlation. The, the Venn diagram of those who don't have access to vaccination, and those who don't have access to clean drinking water, and those who don't have access to electricity. And they don't have farms, they don't have uh, hospitals, they don't have a public health system, they don't have roads to, to, to go with, with the refrigerated truck, bringing the, the... This is ultimately the problem, the infrastructure. So uh, I think we will, we will make a step forward because we have now a clear awareness of the, of the global problem. But of course, the solution will be slow. Yeah. too big to, to be fixed. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I guess one good thing that's come out of COVID, I don't want to say that, but one, one recognition is like everybody's linked. There's an interconnectedness too. And that is a pretty good uh, dry run, if you will, for what we're up against with, with climate change. Let me ask you so slightly to talk about, it's, a, it's an Italian question, European question, which is higher energy prices are creating uh, issues around the cost of electricity, not just in Italy, but you know, you everywhere. Say, hey, everywhere. And I'm, I, I'm in the States now, I see $5 a gallon gasoline. And most Europeans say, what is a gallon? But when they figure out that it's a lot of liters it, and it sounds pretty cheap, I can just say that that's $5 is when people start rioting in the streets in America. Um, <laughs> to what extent will this impact the energy transition? I mean, on the one hand, higher prices kind of reduce the green premium, right, for renewables. It sort of say, oh, well, renewables look uh, relatively attractive. On the other hand, they turn populations away from this idea that they're going to have to pay for the, the, the ambitions of reaching net zero. How do you see it playing out in terms of the... Well, uh, uh, it, it's, a very, it's a very complex uh, uh, problem because there are many, many factors that are interconnected. First of all, in about one year, one megawatt per hour unit energy went from 40 euro to 150. This is a projection to the end of 21. So this is pretty much like your, your $5 per gallon. Uh, in the meantime, because we want to accelerate the decarbonization, the cost of the carbon dioxide went to 30 to 60. So when you see the electricity bill or the heating bill in the families, about 80% of the price increase is due to the price of gas. And about 20% is due to the price of carbon dioxide. So people should know that uh, there's a combination of cost of the energy transition, environmental cost, and primarily cost of the raw matter, of the primary source, which is the gas. Now, in the meantime, you have to consider that the demand of energy in the East has been increasing dramatically. So all the gas is now moving towards East, creating a problem to the West. The strategic reservoir are reducing in Europe. So... What happens if we have a very cold winter, for instance? So, you know, there are a number of, there are a number of problems that, the, that, that they act all together. In addition, we are now taking off again with the economy. Maybe we are, there is a recoil from the crisis. Italy now forecasts 6% this year, which is gigantic. This means that our energy consumption is going to increase. To give you numbers, I'm not sure everybody likes numbers, but I, you know, that's a little bit my... Go ahead, you're a scientist. Okay, so, so I'm, uh, forgive me. So before the COVID, uh, Italy 
had uh, electricity consumption in the range of 320 terawatt hour. During the COVID, it went down to 280 terawatt hour. And now we're uh, resuming to the value of 2019. And since we're growing, we can expect to go 340. And that means that we, we will need more energy. Now, it is true that we are boosting our renewable. But you know, the renewable, first of all, it takes a few years to be installed. And second is not continuous. What night or no wind means no energy. So you have to ensure continuity. Continuity is ensured by, at the moment, by gas, or maybe in the future by accumulators. But at the moment, we don't have gigantic accumulators on the market. So, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a sort of self-consistent calculation that you have to do. You, you design a model to reduce the carbonization, then you grow and you have to correct the model. You need more energy. And in turn, you need more, uh, more gas. And if you need more gas, then you have to go back to your original forecast and change the pace of installation of the renewable energy. So one day we might be completely independent of the gas, but I don't see this possible now. Because anyway, infrastructures are super big here and we need years to, to install them including yeah. electric mobility and all these things. All those things should be powered by green energy. And the green energy needs an infrastructural change, including the grid, which has to become a smart grid. So driven yeah. by AI or so. Now, so is there anything, what, what can you as an, or any min minister uh, in charge of energy, I mean, is there anything you can do in the short term to kind of mitigate? I mean, you, you came out, you're coming out with a series of, of measures from the Italian government um, but what, I mean, is there anything you can do to mitigate that? So number one, mitigation should be different depending on the, on the income. The risk is that the, the weakest classes will pay a, a much too high bill. So we should protect uh, those having low income because they are more sensitive to the increase of the bill of the price. Uh, in, in the meantime, uh, we should accelerate as much as possible the transformation towards uh, the energy transition, basically, the transformation towards uh, renewable energy production. I mean, okay, in Italy, there is the primarily wind and, and, and sun and, and solar. It could be some geothermal. Other countries, they, they made different different uh, choices. But anyway, it has to be renewable. So reducing so that the takes time, of course. You can't that just throw up a wind farm. So in the meantime, you can mitigate. The second, the second strategy, the second uh, pillar of the strategy is reducing consumption or at least making more efficient systems. You know, increasing efficiencies of the house, of the houses, of the residential houses, increasing heating efficiency, uh, reducing waste, improving circularity. Because when you really develop a solid circular economy, you give a second or third life to your product. And of course, you don't need to produce them brand new every year. And so you, you save carbon dioxide. Third pillar is obviously uh, to restore a decent environmental, uh, natural environment. Because oceans, land, and forests are the best carbon dioxide tra traps ever. So, you know, we have direct, indirect, or passive ways to reduce carbon dioxide. Meanwhile, we do this, which is really a, a historical transformation. We have to protect the, the, the vulnerable uh, layers of the society. Social cohesion is one of those. It's really important. And this is not... We're talking about the West. We're talking about rich countries. I mean, I, I, it's going to be impossible to reach net zero targets if you don't have the people along with you. And I think of, you know, uh, the Gilets jaunes in France a couple of years ago, you know, increase in the diesel taxes, uh, reduction of the speed limit seems like a relatively smart thing to have done. Of course, it was a tinderbox. It created this, this extraordinary uh, uprising. 
And I mean, I'm just wondering what more can governments do to prepare people to make even small sacrifices, like going from 75 to 65 kilometers on a secondary road? Changing, changing completely the concept of mobility. I mean, especially Italians have uh, maybe one car each. So, you know, changing the concept of mobility, using more the bicycle, not wasting food, supporting the differentiated waste uh, management. Those things are contributing individually, but uh, uh, maybe individually the contribution is small, but at a, at a global scale, at social level, the, the contribution becomes big. A lot of investment in culture. We should start from schools. Yeah. It is true that the young people were protesting a lot, but what about our kids? Today they are six, and they're going to the first uh, year of school, and in 2050 when we will, uh, we will check the Paris Agreement milestone, the, the total decarbonization, they will be some 36, 35 years old. They will be the, the future adults. They should know now. We should, we should educate them. We should tell them which are the possibilities. And uh, finally, investing in research and development. The solution will be technological. No discussion about that. The damage is done. How fast will be in recovering or in mitigating the damage? The extent of, of the success of all our uh, activities today will depend ultimately on new technologies. What about transforming free carbon dioxide into calcium carbonate rocks? Okay, we don't know how to do it, but imagine you pump carbon dioxide and you make stones. I have a question for you, but on your, so you putting on your scientist's hat. What potential technological innovations or breakthroughs in the, in the fight against climate change excite you the most? You mentioned this, but I, I mean, there are some that are even more, you know, close, that, that were closer to fruition. I mean, hydrogen, I think of that, or direct. Even the, fact that I never, even the fact that I never moved my hat from the head, because this is the only hat I have. I'm a scientist at the moment acting as okay, a... Okay, meta, your metaphorical <laughs> scientist hat. Maybe we call it your scientist, I don't know, uh, okay. frog or apron. <laughs> No, you know, sometimes even, even, even scientists can be useful sometimes to politics. But for short periods. Now, okay, of course I'm joking. You asked me about the uh, technology perspectives. Uh, clearly everything having to do with improving efficiency of uh, non-fossil fuel energy generation. You know, we, we have an incremental increase in efficiency of wind turbine, of solar devices, thermoelectric devices will rise, fuel cells, production of hydrogen. You know, all those things... Uh, I, I don't believe there will be a unified solution to the energy problem. There will be an energy mix. And the more dishes we, are in, we will have in the menu, the better will be the, the energy mix. Of course, I'm strongly convinced that uh, in a few decades from now, so not, not 20, 2040, longer, nuclear fusion, fusion means light atom uh, uh, together, uh, which is basically the, the way it starts. Uh, work and the, the entire life cycle, the entire universe is based on fusion. Uh, that could be the source, capital S. But that's a that's a sort of that you're not talking about the existing nuclear technology. No, no, no. You're no talking no. about something. This is not the the, so the sort of what we have installed today. Two super large consortiums in the world working in US and Europe, and this is really the science of the uh, science of the frontier. But don't forget that uh, solar panels exist because somebody long time ago decided to launch a satellite and they had the problem of the energy and the only the only way to get some energy in the, in the free space it was to have a converter of sunlight into electricity that's why today you have the solar cells that are driving the transformation of the energy production so i think that if we insist on research and development we will find solutions that now we cannot imagine even 
And sometimes we find solutions to problems that we still don't know. So research and development is the key for humans to be different from animals. Now, just quickly, uh, before we close, Italy, let's just think, I mean, I, I saw that the head of Confindustria was saying that the government needs to do more to help firms to, to overcome the cost of the ecological transition. I think you mentioned the automotive sector as one. Are you working on anything specific, any proposal at the EU or just national level to assist? The- at the moment, we are, we are analyzing the, the cluster of, of proposals contained in the Fit for 55 Directive which is quite challenging. And it's, it's right that Europe keeps the, the challenge very high. All member states are analyzing and, of course, projecting the, the constraints of the, of the Fit for 55 on their own local situations. So we are discussing about the combustion engine phase out. We are discussing about, and, you know, all the, all, they are all under the under exam. And I think by the second half of October, we will, uh, we will produce a sort of a, a white paper or Global, global paper addressing uh, our, our issues. Right now, there is a discussion ongoing. Okay, it's interministerial. So we are, we are analyzing all the problems. There is a lot of simulations to, to be done, you understand, because those are things that are committing the country development for, for, for decades. So before saying we like this, we don't like that, we need to do some numerical analysis first. Yeah, and then and the, well, the other thing that came up, I think, in the Confindustria conference was this question of permitting. So, you know, which is comes up everywhere. This is nobody wants to build a, I don't know, a wind turbine in their backyard or obstruct their view with a solar panel and that kind of thing. Is there a way to, I mean, in Italy, is there a way to tackle this? I don't know if it's a nimbyism or just local planning and zoning issues. Is there something you guys are doing to expedite? Yeah, we did already. Possibly the, the one of the most impressive change done by the Draghi's government was the decree about simplification. Specifically for the energy transition, the permitting pipeline has been reduced from 1,200 days down to 250 or so. So this should really change completely the way uh, entrepreneurs uh, will approach our bids for installing new renewable energy power stations. There is, there's a number of simplification, but I think this is the most important because everybody keeps in mind, ah, Italy is too slow. When you apply for, for a new power plant, you have to wait five years to, to even to, to know whether this is yes or no. So you, you see, no one like this because you don't put your money on something that is so uncertain. Uh, having accelerated substantially the entire process should be possibly the, the most important change. Second, we are now planning, we have planned already the, the roadmap of the, of the bid of the tenders for the new power stations for the next five years. And this will be public in the next days. So we're gonna have a roadmap public, everybody can go to the site and see. So you know exactly that in three years at the second quarter, you will have, you will have a bid. So you can essentially plan your investment. This was never the case. And I think will help, will help a lot the, the investors uh, with a number of other uh, simplifications, but I think those should answer the needs of the, of the industries. And, it, and I'm very happy that uh, Confindustria is on board because they, they really feel the commitment. And of course they are pushing to have simpler simpler rules. And this is the case now. Well, good. Look, uh, before we close, I, I wish you the best of luck with the COP26 this week. And of course, you know, it's in all of our interest that you guys succeed. So good luck. Thank you, Rob. It was a pleasure. I'll see you in Milan. Sure, see you in Milan. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. That's our show for the week. 
Stay tuned next week for another edition of the Exchange Road to Cop series. Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to the Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.